If you would please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Welcome to the month of February in which we are talking uh, about the death and resurrection of Jesus, an Easter topic in the month of February. Uh, That is indeed wonderful. We're looking uh, this morning at Mark chapter 16, uh, beginning, uh, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 15, uh, beginning at verse uh, 16. Little theologians, thank you for being here this morning. I hope that you can be patient during the sermon, and I hope that uh, what I say makes sense to you. What I'd like for you to be drawing for me, if your mom and dad are okay with this, is uh, the picture, a picture of the most powerful eraser, a very powerful eraser. It can erase anything. It doesn't, in fact, matter how large the, the plans are for any project. This eraser can erase all those plans, and this eraser is so powerful it can erase all of your plans. This is a passage in which we see uh, people who have plans for Jesus. And Jesus satisfies but one plan, the plan of God. And all other plans are erased. So if you could draw for me a picture of an eraser. Again, our passage is from Mark 15, beginning at verse 16. Would you uh, join me in prayer before we read this passage? Oh, Holy Father, would you be with your steward? Your steward is called to be a steward of the mysteries of the doctrines of grace, the mysteries of the gospel. Your steward is called to be a steward of your word and of your word alone. Strengthen, guide, discipline your steward this morning as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. 
Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the word of our Lord. Some of us are more dramatic than others. Uh, I had an incident yesterday in which I uh, cut my lip. You can't see it from there, but as you walk out, now everyone will be staring at me. It is noticeable. And I just assumed that as I came in this morning, there'd be one person in particular who would hassle me about it, and that uh, was Jake. Jake does this often. It's just what he does. He hassles people. And he hassles me. This includes pranks and jokes and all of that. But I, I just was sure that when we gathered together this morning to pray, that he would notice it and that he would somehow make fun of me. Thankfully, he was distracted with kids. But because I know Jake, in preparation, I came this morning with a story for uh, why my lip was cut. And I had uh, created this wonderful story in which um, I, my car was almost carjacked. I'd stopped at a light. Uh, the window was rolled down because of our fair weather as of late. And someone came to the window with a knife and was going to take my car. And I fought him off and only got just slight little swipe of the lip. It's a really good story. It's problematic that I drive a Toyota Sienna, no doubt, but it's a good story. By the way, I was licking an envelope. That's how it happened. Some of us are uh, more apt at embellishing our stories. We uh, think of our children like this. Some, some of our children uh, will embellish their, their stories so that in any event, it suddenly becomes um, highly an important event and filled with ornamentation and elaboration. Uh, some of you as adults, you're like this as well. And the passage that we're looking at is the kind of passage in which you might expect uh, Mark to share all of the details. It is a crucifixion. It's bloody. It's gory. It's exactly the kind of scene in which we would fill it with a great deal of ornamentation. Ornamentation was really there, but surely we would embellish it somehow. We would make of it a great deal. And it is a great deal. But I want us to pay attention to how Mark shares this great deal. He actually shares this great deal in in a somewhat subdued way. You can look at verse 25 where the announcement of the crucifixion is. And what you read is they crucified him. They crucified him. It's just two words in the Greek. They crucified him. And then immediately after they crucified him, uh, we go to this uh, the scene in which the soldiers are dividing uh, the clothing of Jesus. And, and, and in fact, if you look at this scene in which our Lord and Savior is hung upon a cross, you find surrounding this scene details that seem somewhat, or, uh, somewhat ordinary. Almost like the kind of details that because they don't involve blood and violence, they're not the kinds of details that we would use in sharing the crucifixion of Jesus. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why I was dissatisfied with that Mel Gibson movie. Do you remember that? 
So many of the details are details that actually aren't included in Scripture. In fact, the way Scripture talks about the crucifixion, particularly in Mark's gospel, is actually really subdued. And look what the crucifixion is surrounded by. It's surrounded by these antics of uh, soldiers. Quite a few verses in our passage devoted to that. And then immediately after the antics of the soldiers, they continue. Jesus is hung upon a cross. And Mark seems to pick up where he left off with regards to the parody of the soldiers. And then we go from the soldiers to passers-by, people who just happen to be walking by. And then we go from that scene to a scene in which the religious leaders, they have a a dialogue among themselves. And then after that scene, there is a scene in which uh, the, the robbers on either side of Jesus have something to say. Rather common elements of a story that ought to be filled with gore and blood. The sermon this morning is to try and discern why it is that Mark, why it is the Holy Spirit would give us the details that we have before us. And what this passage is saying is this passage is is actually drawing our attention to understand that Jesus is God's Son fulfilling God's plan. Jesus, He is God's Son fulfilling God's plan. And therefore, God demands belief in Him. God's Son fulfilling God's plan. I want us to actually do something that may trouble you when you first hear it. I want to run through this passage twice. I know that you're hearing that like, oh, he's going to give us two sermons. I'm not. But we're going to run through this passage twice, and we're going to first run through the passage um, looking for how this passage shows us that Jesus is God's Son fulfilling God's plan. And then we want to pass through the passage again, and we want to look at the various pictures of unbelief. Well, first of all, let's begin here. Let's just talk about the background of this passage, how exactly this passage works. This isn't really a main point, but it's something that we need to talk about before we get to the two main points. Mark has arranged this scene to show us not what Jesus does, but what is done to him. Did you notice that Jesus does next to nothing in this passage? He does do one thing. Mark has arranged this scene so that, we, so that he could show us not what Jesus does, but what is done to him. But Mark has also arranged this scene according to various actions of four groups in the scene. Let's run through them real quickly. Again, this is background, and we'll dive in. Verses 16 through 27. That, the, all of those verses are actually about the actions of the soldiers, This is before the crucifixion, the crucifixion, and immediately following the crucifixion. You see the soldiers, they lead Jesus. They call together the battalion of 600 men. You see that in verse 16, leading Jesus, calling together a battalion. Verse 17, they clothe him. Verse 18, they salute him. Verse 19, they strike him. They spit on him. They kneel before him. Verse 20, they mock him. They strip him. They lead him again. And in fact, even in verse 21, where uh, Simon of Cyrene shows up, this, by the way, uh, maybe this man had family members in the church at Rome. That might be uh, why uh, his um, family is called out, his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. But even in 21, where we have the action of another individual, look who it is who compels Simon of Cyrene. It's the soldiers. It's the soldiers who, in verse 23, offer Jesus wine and myrrh. And in 24, uh, they're the ones who uh, crucify him. In verses 16 through 27, the soldiers are doing almost everything. 
That should stand out to us. Verse 28 is missing. That's happened before in Mark's gospel. We have some uh, unreliable manuscripts, so no verse 28. Verse 29 through 30. In this scene, Mark tells us about those who passed by. These are visitors in the city of Jerusalem. How remarkable that our Lord and Savior be hung upon a cross and that Mark would switch gears in verse 29 to tell us about, well, nobodies. Passers-by. And they come and they deride Jesus and blaspheme him and wag their heads at him and mock him. It's remarkable. They're more active than Jesus as well. And you see verse 31, what happens? Mark switches gears again and we have the religious leaders, chief priests and scribes. And Mark tells us what they do, even while Jesus is not doing anything. And then as if this stage couldn't bear the weight of any more figures on it, Look what happens in verse 33. Even those robbers, those robbers actually uh, ridicule Jesus. Four scenes from four different perspectives. So in Mark's telling, Jesus, he does virtually nothing but four groups, soldiers and visitors and religious leaders and the crucified, they actually perform all the action. Why? Why are they performing all the action and not Jesus? Because Mark is telling us Jesus is God's son fulfilling God's plan. Now that's just background material. You can call that main point one. But let's see how this uh, trickles through these various scenes that Jesus is God's uh, son fulfilling God's plan. God God is the father, the creator. He's in control of everything. And if you don't actually believe that, that God is sovereignly in control, we have a hard time understanding what's happening in this passage. We might think that Jesus is some kind of pawn and various factions in the ancient world are pulling Jesus around. And we certainly wouldn't say that what's happening here is happening by chance. No, what's happening here is happening according to the sovereign plan of God. Everything that happens to Jesus fulfills what God said would happen. This is a story of a man's crucifixion, but it's also a commentary on the Old Testament. In preparing this passage, I began to uh, make, make my way on this path just to, to find out uh, how many of the details that Mark presents, details that were I telling the story of the crucifixion of my Lord and Savior, I wouldn't present, but these details that Mark does present, how many of them come from the Old Testament? I could study this passage for months and months and months. It is so remarkable how well Mark understands his Bible. The the, the details that he presents are are details that I imagine Mark himself has seen, or perhaps this was the body of teaching uh, of the disciples. Just follow this. Mark tells us that uh, over and over again that these soldiers are leading Jesus around. You, you see the shifts in places here. There's, there's inside the palace, there's outside the palace, there's to uh, Golgotha. They're leading him around from place to place, and yet uh, that's what God told to Isaiah, yes? That Jesus would be like a lamb being led. Everything that would happen to the servant of God in Isaiah 53 are things that are happening to the servant that we wouldn't do, but God does. 
They're leading him around, just as God said. Psalm 22.16 says that the ones who crucified Jesus would first encircle him. Psalm 22.16, they encircle him. Isn't it interesting how the soldiers, they they increase their numbers by uh, gathering the battalion, 600 strong, circling Jesus. God said that his servant would be rejected and despised, but also that he wouldn't open his mouth, and our Jesus, he doesn't open his mouth. God said that he would have no beauty to commend him. He would look nothing like a king, and so what are they doing? They're dressing him up to look like a king. They put a crown of thorns on his head. Where would they get a crown of thorns sitting around on the top of a dusty locker? Where would they get the crown of thorns? It was someone's bright idea, was it, to make a crown of thorns. And yet the thorn is the symbol of fallen humanity, uh, the fallen humanity of the first Adam. Uh, Thorns would fight against this Adam, and here thorns are crafted, deliberately so, and pushed upon the very head of the second Adam. Isaiah even says that on him will be placed chastisement. On him will be placed chastisement, the symbol of man's fallenness, shoved on his head, deliberately so. Psalm 22 tells us uh, that he would be scorned and despised and mocked. Uh, Psalm 22 tells us that his garments will be divided and that they will cast lots to see who owns them. Uh, By the way, Do you know who Psalm 22 is about? It's not only about David. Psalm 22 is about God's own son. About his own son. The very beginning of Psalm 22, there's language uh, about uh, the son whom God has uh, drawn from the womb. Jesus himself said that he would be mocked, that he would be spit at. How did he know? Because he knows the Old Testament. He knows God's plan. When we read all of these verses about the soldiers, we may be tempted to think that this is some kind of creative parody performed by misbehaving soldiers. You know that uh, Mark's audience, uh, Mark is writing to an audience in Rome. They would know very well what Roman soldiers were like. They might read this passage and they might think, yes, this is precisely uh, how those soldiers are. They're like children. But that's not what Mark is after here. These aren't just soldiers misbehaving. This isn't a creative parody. This is God showing us that this is his son and that this is his plan. Mark knows that. That's why we have the details we have. And look in verse 29 at the Jerusalem visitors. They wag their heads at Jesus. What a strange expression. Can you imagine them wagging their heads? What a gesture of derision. But not just that, they actually speak as well. They mock him. You know, Psalm 22 verse 7 and Psalm 109 verse 25 there are similar, very, very similar expressions to what these individuals are doing. The, the wagging of heads shows up in those two psalms. And when they mock him, they mock him about the destruction of the temple. Do you know that when they're mocking him, that God actually prophesied that they would? Lamentations 2.15, Jeremiah 18.16. There is this derision of 
God's own son at the expense of the city of Jerusalem. Jeremiah says, excuse me, he says that those who pass by, (coughs) they shake their heads in horror. Isaiah said that the king of Assyria, he would wag his head at Jerusalem, and that's what they're doing. And really what they, what they uh, at the heart of their uh, actions, is that they're blaspheming the Son of God. But they're blaspheming the Son of God to his face. There's no other way to understand verses 29 and 30 other than this. They are speaking to Jesus' face. They're standing at the base of his cross. He is bloody and hanging before them. And they're making eye contact. And they're wagging their heads. And they're mocking him. And everything that they're doing is a fulfillment of God's plan. Might be a little bit lighthearted, but you see in verse 29, they say, aha. Aha, it's a real word in the Greek. Even this expression is promised. Psalm 35, Psalm 40. These passers-by, they're not enacting a parody. They're actually showing us that this is God's Son and that God's Son is fulfilling God's plan. The next scene is in 31, the religious leaders. For three years, they've been trying to destroy Jesus. And just like these other scenes, they're fulfilling God's word. In Psalm 22, verse 7, we uh, know that there will be those who mock the Son of God, and they're doing that. And really, they're mocking God because throughout the Old Testament, including Psalm 22, God is known in a certain way. God is known as the one who delivers his Son, as the one who delights in his Son. And look what they're saying. God is one who does not deliver this man. And they're implying that God doesn't delight in this man. They're not really blaspheming uh, the Son as much as they're blaspheming God himself. They're saying, you, God, are not doing what you promised to do, to deliver and to delight in. In several places in the Old Testament, this is exactly how one is marked as a false prophet. These are the ones who revile and blaspheme God throughout the story of redemption captured in the Old Testament. And that's what these religious leaders are doing. I want you to consider that the very notion of testing God, making God prove he is who he says he is, prove yourself, deliver your son. Who does that remind you of? That should remind you of Satan the one testing Jesus. Jesus, prove your power by leaping from the pinnacle of the temple. That's what these religious leaders are doing. But if we knew the Old Testament, we would know this already. And then finally, verse 33, just a single verse, but enough uh, for us to know, according to Mark, that these two men have things to say to Jesus Hanging on his left and on his right, we're told that they revile him. Literally, they're blaspheming him. Really, they're copying the religious leaders at their feet. Jesus is 
uh, they are enduring a just sentence. But they're still not as bad as the guy who's between them. The extent of human depravity, proof that from Noah's days, every intention of the thoughts of our hearts is evil continually, the extent of human depravity is right here hanging on either side of Jesus. They themselves are on the edge of death, but they're still better than the one in the middle. Jesus is God's son, fulfilling God's plan. That's what Mark is telling us. That's why there isn't any gratuitous embellishments about the details of the crucifixion. Jesus is God's son, and he's fulfilling God's plan. Remember how I said there's, there's one action of Jesus. It's actually in verse 23. Jesus, he's offered wine mixed with myrrh, which is a tree sap, I guess. And and it's hard to tell what the wine mixed with myrrh would do if it would make Jesus' body numb, in which case it might be merciful, or if rather it helped Jesus to die more quickly. I suspect that's what they're offering him. And the one action of Jesus in 23, do you see it? His one action, he says no. Well, he doesn't say it, does he? But he gestures that he's not going to take it. Why? Well, don't you remember at the Lord's table, he said, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He knows who he is, and he knows whose plan he's fulfilling. He's God's son fulfilling God's plan. That is what Mark wants us to see. Now, let's pass through uh, the text again very quickly. And we want to understand what it is that God demands of us. God demands that we believe in him. And with these four scenes, there's a warning to us. Will we believe that this is God's son fulfilling God's plan or won't we? And with these four scenes come four negative examples. These four scenes show us what lack of faith, what unbelief can look like. I want you to notice that to the soldiers, Jesus is just a joke. To the soldiers, he's just a joke. The entire battalion comes out. The entire battalion is well-trained. And they are ready to do anything and everything to protect the empire from any and every threat. They're trained to do that. All of them are there. The elite of the elite. But Jesus is not a threat. He's a joke. That's why they act the way they act. They know that nobody needs or wants a new king. We're happy where we are. And Jesus is no threat at all. He's just a joke. The ones who have the power to deal with a real threat, earthly speaking, are the ones who think Jesus is but a joke. In their plan, bring on the real power. We will take care of that power. But Jesus is just a joke. And to the Jerusalem visitors, those who are passing by, these are the ones who have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. These are the religiously pious. But they won't go anywhere near Jesus, will they? To the soldiers, he's a joke. To the Jerusalem visitors, he's a scandal. Isn't a person's reputation important? When we think about what it means to wag one's head... It's a commentary on someone's poor reputation. 
The passers-by are wagging their head and they talk about him and to him as if he is a tabloid cover story. This is not a man to revere. This is a man who has fallen from all glory. This is a man to deride. To the Jerusalem visitors, he's a scandal. Wag your head and keep passing by. To the religious leaders, he's rejected by the community. There's something very interesting that happens when Mark is talking about the religious leaders. The religious leaders, they don't mock Jesus to his face like the passers-by. The religious leaders, they mock Jesus to one another. They have a community. And while the soldiers think that he's a joke and the visitors think that he's a scandal, well, they think that he is to be rejected by the community. He's an outsider. He's outside their circle. Their ridicule of them is the kind of ridicule that they can all agree on. In fact, to be a member of the community is to, together with a single voice, talk with derision about the Son of God. Luke says in his gospel that they scoff at him, that they literally turn up their noses at him. Isn't it easier to turn your nose up at someone when you have someone standing next to you that's also willing to do that? It's a community of scoffing. To the religious leaders, he's rejected by the community. To those who are hanging on the cross, Jesus is a waste of humanity. Only Luke tells us that one of these convicted felons actually repents and believes. Mark wants us to see this. He wants to see that for some people, no amount of desperation will lead them to praise Jesus. They'll die hating him. We have two men with nails in their limbs and death is on its way. And even still, they have enough air in their lungs and strength in their diaphragm to find him worse than themselves. He can't get out of his sentence. He can't save himself. And these individuals in Mark's gospel are the kind of individuals who are happy going to the grave in their rejection of Jesus. Jesus is just a waste. I'd rather die than worship him. Now, this sounds really bleak, but I want to say something here at the very end to to conclude. Remember, Jesus is God's son fulfilling God's plan. But God demands that we believe in him. We're looking in the month of February at an Easter passage. And we have an opportunity uh, as as a gathering of Christian people to test our own belief and to illustrate our own lack of belief. Do any of these responses in these four scenes ring true with you? Is there anything about your life that might show that you believe Jesus is a joke? That he is uh, not only on the back burner, but he is in the very top of the closet you never visit. You proclaim faith in him, but in many ways he has no impact on your life and he may as well be a joke. Are there times in your life where you are ashamed of Jesus like the passers-by who find him to be nothing but a scandal, someone of poor repute? And are sometimes you ashamed of Jesus and you're not willing to be known as a follower of Jesus before those people with whom you wish to be popular? Is Jesus sometimes a scandal to you? Is Jesus uh, sometimes the kind of person that takes you away from your beloved community? So many good things about your community. 
It could be your family. It could be your workplace. It could be uh, friendships. So many beloved things about those communities. But it's a community that has rejected Jesus. And do you feel as though that you might be able to set Jesus aside and without rejecting him, still maintain the fellowship of those who do reject him? Have you ever felt that temptation? Have you ever felt that Jesus was a waste that his path of following the will of God, a path that takes him to the cross where he dies in blood, do you think that that is a waste? Are you too good for that plan that you'll satisfy the will of the Father in some other way? And you might not say this, certainly you wouldn't, but in many ways Jesus chose the wrong option and he, he's a waste. He chose to die. This is important to do this right now because it's not Easter, is it? And Easter is when we usually have a lot of uh, folks uh, who are only at church uh, once or twice. And this is when we normally say we have a lot of non-believers with us. And there are non-believers that are with us here this morning. But it's an opportunity for us as Christian people to ask these questions about ourselves. Are we like the soldiers in any way? Or the passers-by? Or the religious leaders? Or those hanging on a cross? Are we like them in any way? I wonder if Mark is asking the same question to believers in Rome. And what Mark wants them to see is what I want us to see. He is God's son. And he has fulfilled God's plan. And God's demand to us is that we would believe in him. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we do thank you for admonishing us with your word. We thank you for the glorious story, the glorious true story in time and space that reminds us our faith is not as strong as we think it is. May we not be like the soldiers, the passers-by, the religious leaders, or those hanging on the cross. Amen.